Sorry that that fellow can't be with you this morning. He sounds <laughs> tremendous, but uh, I'm delighted to be here, as always. Uh, to be back at Bowie is very much like coming home for me, and it's always a privilege and a pleasure to be able to stand before you to exposit uh, God's Word. And this morning, uh, I'll be speaking from 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our Old Testament lesson, though, comes from the book of Psalms. If you want to turn there in the Pew Bibles, you may find Psalm 51 on page 474. You may follow along or just listen as you so desire. Uh, This is God's Word, so pay careful attention to it. Psalm 51 says, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem, then will you delight in right sacrifices in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. It's the reading of God's word. May he add his blessing. Together, hymn number 80. If you'd please stand, turn to hymn number 80. The sermon text this morning comes from Paul's First letter to Timothy, chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Hear now the word of our God. Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 
The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen indeed. Would you pray with me? Our God and Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. And so we ask that you would enable us by your Spirit to feed upon your word, that upon hearing we might believe, and upon believing we might know in greater measure that life that you have given us in your Son. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. As Pastor Fix just mentioned, I have transitioned from uh, pastoral ministry to serving in a seminary. And uh, one of the things I was reminded in taking on this new calling is uh, of some of the needs seminary students, some of the needs of, of new pastors, new preachers, as they learn uh, how to minister the Word of God. And one of the things that every new preacher needs to learn is when it's appropriate to use yourself as an illustration. Uh, there is a department in uh, most seminary communities called the Department of Practical or Pastoral Theology, and Uh, this department will offer instruction in this regard. Offer instruction about the various pitfalls that can accompany using yourself as an illustration. Pitfalls like coming off boastful or superior. Pitfalls like unnecessarily distracting the congregation. Pitfalls like disclosing inappropriate information about yourself. Uh, Early on, I thought I would avoid these pitfalls altogether by never using myself as a sermon illustration. Uh, When I needed an illustration, I would use my wife instead. (laughs) Which, as it turns out, comes with a somewhat different set of of pitfalls. In our verses this morning, we see the Apostle Paul using himself as an illustration. Paul's putting himself forward perhaps as the preeminent illustration of the greatness of God's grace toward even the most wretched of sinners. Paul's rehearsing for us his own experience of God's grace. And he's doing this as a response to these false teachers who were in Ephesus at the time. Uh, False teachers who were going around and confusing and distressing Christ's church. And this is important to see, I believe, because so many times the treatments of these verses before us, verses 12 through 17, we'll we'll view them and take them as a sort of digression. As Paul moving away from his main line of argumentation, a sort of parenthesis that is only loosely at best related to the material that surrounds it. As if Paul was a sort of absent-minded professor. 
who can get easily distracted. I want you to see that that's not at all what's going on here. That in fact, Paul's account of his own experience of God's grace really does challenge the claims of these false teachers. Uh, Paul had mentioned these teachers in verses 3 through 7. He says that they were peddling a sort of speculative theology based on myths, based on genealogies. And Paul says, my, my experience of the gospel shows you, Timothy, what is really at the heart of Christian ministry. And don't get distracted by such myths. Don't get distracted by genealogies. Don't let them take hold or root in the life of, of the church. And similarly, Paul's experience of God's grace challenges the so-called law teachers that he mentions in the immediately preceding verses, verses 8 through 11. Right? These law teachers, so-called because they're going around preaching some version of a works righteousness. And so Paul, again, points to himself, draws our attention to himself, and he doesn't do so, we see, though, in order to in any way boast in himself. Just the opposite. He's drawing attention to himself in order to boast of Christ, his Savior. Nor does Paul's appeal, appealing to himself really distract from the glories of Christ. Rather, we see Paul inviting us to, in a sense, look through him as the chief of sinners that we might behold Christ, the all-sufficient Savior. And so in this intensely personal account of his own experience, Paul is reminding Timothy of the character of God's grace. He's saying, don't lose, don't lose sight of God's grace. Don't lose sight of the character of God's grace. Don't lose sight of its central importance in the Christian life and the Christian ministry. So I want to consider with you this morning the, the character of God's grace that Paul emphasizes for Timothy and for us and the first and perhaps foremost character of God's grace is that God's grace is a saving grace. At the very heart of his testimony, Paul, Paul gives us one of the most sublime summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture. Paul says in verse 15, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Many have suggested that, that what we have here was a widely known saying, sort of catechism that was circulating in the early church. I don't know if that is true or not, but I think we could agree that this is certainly a memorable saying, certainly a beautiful saying. It's certainly a clear saying. Certainly a concise saying, something Presbyterian pastors could perhaps learn something from. In less than ten words, in less than ten words, the apostle expresses the work of the Son of God from incarnation to the atonement. Perhaps from the incarnation to the resurrection and the ascension of, of Christ to glory that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That the Christ would come to save sinners was, of course, a, a scandalous claim. It was a, 
a scandalous claim for these law teachers in Timothy's day. These teachers who were preaching that Christ came for law keepers. So you better keep the law. You better obey in order to be saved. It was a scandalous claim for the religious leaders in Jesus' day. You'll remember the Pharisees time and time again ridiculing Jesus for for what? For eating with, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with notorious sinners. And how did Jesus respond? Almost every time Jesus responds as he does in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's who I came for, Jesus says. I came for sinners. Similarly, Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And what Paul is saying is if you don't understand this, you will miss the very gospel itself. This was the purpose of Christ's coming. Not to show us how we could save ourselves by trying harder. Nor to disclose a sort of secret knowledge through which we might ascend to heaven by achieving greater levels of enlightenment. Jesus came rather to do for helpless, to do for hopeless sinners what they could not do for themselves. Jesus came to live a life perfectly obedient to his heavenly Father. Jesus came to give his life as the perfectly innocent Son of God and in giving his life, bearing in his own body the full weight of his Father's wrath, not against his sins, but against your sins and my sins, sins of all of his people, past, present, and future, laid on Christ at the cross as the penalty-paying, atoning Son of God. Jesus came to rise from the dead. came to rise from the dead in a newness of life because of his obedience. The grave could not hold him. Because of his indestructible life, death did not have the final word. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended into glory and is seated at the right hand of his Father. And he did all of this for those who were by nature his enemies. And all of this, this wonderful gospel message, is captured and summarized for us in those wonderful words that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think we're reminded here, Christians, that there's a wonderful simplicity to the gospel. As Paul prefaces this simple expression of the gospel with these words, that the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. In this way, Paul is highlighting this for Timothy in a day without highlighters or bold fonts or italics. Paul is saying, Timothy, focus on this. He's emphasizing this simple gospel message and in so doing, contrasting it with the complicated and the esoteric myths that were being peddled by these false teachers. Paul's saying to, to his dear child in the faith, he's saying, Timothy, 
Don't get distracted. Don't get discouraged. Right? Our faith is based on that which is certain. Our hope is founded on that which can be known and has, has been revealed that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And so Timothy, Paul is saying, Timothy, let this simple gospel message and all of its profundity and all of its, its power animate your ministry. Keep it at the center. Not only did, did Christ come into the world to save sinners, Paul says, but Paul wants to remind Timothy that Christ came into the world to save great sinners. And to prove that Jesus came into the world to save great sinners, notice that Paul doesn't point to what, who many would think would be the obvious illustrations, right? Of course, the, the prostitutes with whom uh, Jesus ate, or the tax collectors to whom Jesus ministered. He doesn't point to the thief hanging and dying on the cross next to Jesus and say, look there, you can see how great of sinners Jesus saves because he saved that hanging and dying thief. Paul points to himself. No sooner does Paul issue this trustworthy saying that Jesus came into the world to save sinners than he adds, of whom I am the foremost. Now it's important to, to know that Paul's not speaking scientifically here. He has as if he somehow quantified all the sins of every sinner in the world and came to the conclusion that his sinfulness surpassed quantitatively, that of every other sinner. Rather, Paul is, is simply saying, look who God saved when he saved me, Timothy. In verse 13, he says, a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. That's who God saved. A blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Paul is, of course, referring here to his, his former life as one who dedicated his life to persecuting followers of Christ. Uh, Paul himself recounts before Agrippa in Acts 26 something of what his former life was about. He says that in Acts, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to the foreign cities. Paul hated Christ. He hated Christ's church and he did everything in his power to destroy her. Up to and including imprisoning her members. Executing her leaders and seeking all the time to coerce Christians into blaspheming Christ. And Paul reminds Timothy, that's who Christ saved. Someone who did that. And so when Paul says in verse 13 that I received mercy because I acted ignorantly, in unbelief, he's not trying here to minimize his sin. Right? He's not, not pleading extenuating circumstances. But Paul's simple, simply acknowledging the fact that his sins were of the character, 
or had risen to the, the level of those who had, had murdered Christ out of foolish ignorance. So that Christ would pray from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Paul isn't seeking to minimize his sin here. He's seeking to distinguish it, to distinguish his sin from the sin of Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he mentions in the following verses. These individuals who apparently had known the truth at one point and confessed the truth at one point, and yet have turned from Christ and the truth of Christ. Paul's under no illusion, clearly under no illusion, regarding the magnitude of his sin. He's not thinking, well, yes, I was a blasphemer, but I had other qualities that made me highly desirable uh, as, a, as a prospect for, for saving. You know, Paul says that it was sheer grace. It was sheer grace, and he says this so that God would receive all the glory. When he says in verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. Paul wants Timothy to know that Jesus came into the world to save even the foremost of sinners, because by saving the foremost of sinners, God displays the greatness of his love and the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work for sinners. To remind Timothy that Christ's work on the cross, to use Bunyan's memorable words, abounds even for the chief of sinners. God extended mercy to Paul, he says, so that pastors like Timothy could address doubting hearts. Perhaps uh, some of you here this morning have a, have a doubting heart. Those who are in ministry any length of time will most certainly address someone in the congregation who will come up to them after worship and say things to them like, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. I understand what you're saying, but you don't know what I've done. And if you knew what I did, you wouldn't be saying what you're saying. And Paul here is saying to Timothy, Timothy, preach in such a way that even the greatest of sinners in your congregation will know that Jesus came to save Sinners even worse than them. And, and pastors are, are able to say to doubting hearts, as I say to you all this morning, every doubting heart here who's wondering if God's grace can reach even me, that no, no, I don't know what sins you've committed. But I know that God could save Paul. And if God could save Paul, he could save even you. For God's grace is a grace for sinners. It's a grace for, that saves even the greatest of sinners. But notice that Paul doesn't stop there. Paul speaks also of God's grace being a grace that strengthens him. 
God's grace is a saving grace. Secondly, it's a strengthening grace. Somewhat remarkably, God's grace towards Paul doesn't just end with the forgiveness of his sins, but it persists in Paul's life as the daily source of his strength. He says in verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now it's important to note that when Paul here is thanking Christ for judging me faithful, he's not saying I'm so thankful that Jesus got it right. I'm so thankful that Jesus was discerning enough that he could see just how faithful I am. Paul's perfectly clear here that his, that his prior life was characterized in every way by unfaithfulness. He was a blasphemer who hated Christ and hated Christ's people. Jesus' judgment of Paul as faithful, I want you to see, is explained in the very next clause. What does he mean by that? By appointing me to his service. The emphasis here, you see, is not on Paul's faithfulness so much on the Christ who appointed and strengthened Paul for his service. The focus is on Christ who equipped Paul for his service, that he might be faithful in his his calling. As one commentator put it, the sense here is of the potency of divine calling to achieve certain results in human lives. I love that. The potency of divine calling. That when Jesus called Paul to be an apostle, he didn't just call him and leave him to his own devices, but he called him and became for him through his spirit the very strength which would empower Paul to execute his calling. God didn't say to Paul, I'll save you, but because of your blasphemous life, you're going to sit on the bench in my kingdom. Right? I tried my hand at baseball in uh, my youth, and I spent most of the season on the bench. The coach said, in effect, to me, oh, you could be on the team, but you're going to just watch uh, from, the, from the sideline. Uh, and I was okay with that, actually. God is not just saving and forgiving and redeeming and renewing Paul, but he's using him and appointing him for kingdom work. And God, the God, same God who appoints is the God who equips and strengthens. And Paul says, I'm thankful. This may be a bit surprising, as Paul looks back on his experience as an apostle, that he would say, I'm thankful. That he erupts here in a sort of unmitigated thankfulness because prior to his conversion on the road to to Damascus, Paul, you'll remember, moved in the highest circles of the religious and intellectual establishment of his day. He went to the best school he sat at the, the feet of the most, one of the most famous rabbis in his day, Rabbi Gamaliel. Right, Paul had advanced quickly through the ranks of the most 
influential cultural and religious circles of his day, uh, the Pharisees. And he was not only successful, incredibly successful as a young Jew, growing up with, with privilege, we know that Paul also enjoyed, unlike most other Israelites, he also enjoyed Roman citizenship. And what happened when, Christ, when Paul was appointed an apostle? Paul gives us just a little window into his new life. Right? Having lived in the most prestigious circles that a Jew could live and move in his day, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, that five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers and danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. This is the service to which Paul was called and appointed as a minister of the gospel. And Paul thanks God for it. He thanks God. Paul thanks God that he would strengthen him to endure suffering and to endure hardship and to endure persecution for the sake of the kingdom. That God would be pleased to use him, weak in himself, to bear witness to the risen Christ. Paul here is thanking God for the privilege of serving. Serving which included, as we heard, much, much suffering. Because Paul knows that in his own suffering, he's bearing witness to the one who suffered and who died for him. And so Paul counts it a privilege. He counts it a, a joy. And we see here Paul attributing any and all of his work for the kingdom of Christ, who appointed him, who strengthens him, he's attributing it all to God's free, sheer, and unmerited grace. This is an important reminder, I believe. A reminder for all Christians uh, to, to consider and to, and to regard God's strengthening grace in our lives. Here we're reminded that any success we enjoy, any service we may render, we're able to render because God has been gracious to us. It's not, you see, because we're so wise, so clever. It's not because we're so strong or because we're, we've been so very faithful to God. No, rather, it's because God is so very faithful to us. God is so very faithful to us and has graciously strengthened us for his service so that any success we enjoy must redound to the praise and to the glory of Christ himself. So let me ask you Christians, when you look at your life, do you see God's strengthening grace? Are you able to look back and say that all of my successes are because of God's sovereign and abounding grace toward me? And are you confident as you look ahead? Are you confident that the same God who has strengthened you to bring you thus far will continue to strengthen you 
as he leads you home. However, to whatever you're called and however you're serving, serving God in Christ, whether uh, that's in uh, church work, whether it's ordained church work or serving in the nursery or serving in hospitality, serving in visitation, serving in Bible study, whether it's uh, your calling as a, as a husband or a wife or a, a child at school or in work, in your community, in whatever way, to whatever God has called you, do you see God's hand strengthening you to live as unto him? And do you lean on him? Do you lean on him? Do you look to him to provide that which is necessary for you to be faithful? And do you return to him? Do you return to him the thanksgiving that he alone deserves, knowing that whatever success you enjoy, you enjoy because God has been gracious and loving to you? Well, thirdly and finally, Paul speaks of God's saving grace. He speaks of his strengthening grace. And he, he speaks finally of his overwhelming grace. Paul, Paul is clearly overwhelmed by God's grace in our, in our verses. I want to be clear, though, that Paul doesn't tell Timothy to be overwhelmed by God's grace. Uh, Paul doesn't tell Timothy to feel or to experience anything in particular. But Paul does show himself to be a man who is still, who is still, after many years, a follower of Christ, someone who is still amazed that God would save so great a sinner like himself. And this is seen most obviously in Paul's conclusion, right? Where he, he sort of erupts, as it were, into doxology to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Many commentators will speak of Paul's doxology here as sort of erupting from out of nowhere, suddenly and unexpectedly, but I think, I think we've seen it coming. I think we've seen it coming because Paul's entire testimony here is replete with awe and wonder at the love of God for him in Jesus Christ. Paul opens the section by expressing a deep thanksgiving. in Verse 12, right? I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. In verse 14, he speaks of God's grace overflowing for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul is here using a fairly rare word in, in the Greek uh, that is sometimes translated as superabounded. God's grace superabounded. Some have seen Paul here reaching for words. Have you ever had to do that? You can't quite find the right word to describe something. You find yourself reaching or grasping for the, the closest equivalent. And the close, closest equivalent for Paul is that God's grace superabounded. Abounded over and over again. And so I don't think we should really be surprised at all that upon pondering and rehearsing the greatness of God's grace and mercy, which superabounded for him, he would then, in a sense, erupt from the very core of his being with heartfelt praise to the triune God. 
to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The gospel, see, when it is beheld through spirit-wrought faith, in all of its Christ-honoring glory, will inevitably produce true heartfelt worship. And Paul, we see here, is himself overflowing. He's overflowing with gratitude that God would save a man who would so intently and so mercilessly persecute the church for whom the Son of God died, shed his own blood. Paul's overflowing with wonder that God's grace doesn't just cover his sins. Right? Christ's blood isn't just sufficient to meet that tall order, which are, is Paul's sins, and as getting used to, as a, as a professor, having to interact with students who want, want to know just how much they, they have to do in order to pass. Uh, that's never a good, good attitude, uh, but especially in seminary. Paul's not saying that Jesus' blood just, just managed to cover my sins. But he's saying, however great my sins are, and he acknowledges their greatness, he's saying Christ's grace is greater still. And so, Christians, let me ask you this morning, do you still find God's grace amazing? Paul, Paul hasn't become jaded or cynical in his service to Christ. You could imagine how that would have been a temptation. Right? There's no sense here with Paul that I've paid God back at least a little. No, when Paul considers his life, he sees God's grace abounding and superabounding for an undeserving sinner. And as he beholds this wonderful gospel message, he is moved to worship. He's moved to praise. So if the, the wonder of God's grace has grown dim in your heart, in your mind, I would suggest that you've either minimized your own sin or minimized God's grace, or most likely both. But Paul's words here are, are a reminder to, to all of us to not deal with our sin by minimizing it or justifying it. You remember that our sin, like Paul's sins, are such an offense to a holy God that it took nothing less than the, the death of the incarnate Son in order to atone for them. Sin is that serious. But as you consider your sin, consider also Christ. As Paul says in Romans 5, but where sin increased... Grace abounded all the more. When we minimize our sin, when we're not really aware, not only of how sinful we, we were in the past, but of how sinful we, we still are, and how much we daily need God's forgiveness, we will inevitably minimize the gospel itself. And it's striking here that Paul speaks in the present tense when he says, of whom I am the foremost. Notice that he doesn't say, I was the foremost, but I've mostly cleaned up my act. 
Paul, in contemplating his former life as a blasphemer and persecutor of Christians, also is led to consider his life in the present. And he includes his present life as well, as he's still so keenly aware of indwelling sin. And I believe that Paul is is voicing here really the sentiment of every true Christian. Every Christian who is being honest with themselves, we're not always honest with ourselves. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're not always honest with ourselves. But when we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we are the greatest sinners we know. Because the heart that we know most deeply and most intimately is our own heart. Paul Paul indicates as much in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 11, when he says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? When we take an honest look at our, our own lives, we find all manner of hatreds and lusts, envies, greed, covetousness, pride, all manner of evils, most of which we manage to keep hidden from those around us. And though we don't know our hearts in full, the little we do know is enough for each of us to be able to say with the apostle, of whom I am the foremost. And as we do so, we we acknowledge our daily need of God's forgiving and strengthening grace. There will no doubt be times and seasons in your Christian life in which the gospel will have grown dim and the cross of Christ will sort of ring hollow in your ears. And the temptation at those moments is for us to to focus in on our lack of joy, to turn inwards and focus on our own experience of spiritual dryness. But the solution to, to spiritual apathy is not to sort of take a megaphone to our own hearts and start shouting at them, and hollering imperatives like, Rejoice! Be glad! But the solution, rather, is to look outside of ourselves. To look outside of ourselves to a Savior hanging and dying on a cross for sins he didn't commit. Hanging and dying because of his unfathomable love for you and for me. The solution is to take our eyes off of ourselves and behold Christ yet again. Later in the the worship this morning, we're going to sing the familiar hymn, Amazing Grace. Uh, Those precious words penned by another unlikely convert. Many of you no doubt know the story of John Newton. Uh, John Newton, who prior to his conversion was famous for his blasphemous language. It's famous for a life lived as a wicked and brutal slave trader. But Newton, like Paul, like you, like me, was redeemed by the grace of God. 
And not long before he died, Newton is quoted as saying to a close friend that my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Even at the end of his life, Newton found God's grace toward him, a sinner, a staggering and altogether beautiful and absolutely amazing truth. May this be true of each and every one of us. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your amazing grace, which abounds for even the chief of sinners. May each of us be more and more moved to echo Paul and acknowledge, in acknowledging ourselves to be the chief of sinners, that we might in true humility turn from our sins and turn once again to your saving grace offered to us in Christ. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins, freely offered to those who in no way could ever earn it or repay it. Enable us to freely receive it in humility and by faith, that in receiving it and knowing it and standing confidently in it, all of our work may redound to the glory of Christ, your Son, in whose name we give you thanks and praise. Amen. Let's continue our worship.